Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Welcome back, episode two of the new season, and we hope that you enjoyed our chat with Laura Jane Williams last week. It was a pleasure to share it and to chat with her about all things romance. I know, and I'm just so excited that now we've actually started. Like season five has officially started now. Oh, and we have some really great guests coming. Oh God, my mum's video calling me. (laughs) (laughs) Just text her and be like, mum, I just need 10 minutes. Hang on. All right. (laughs) It is very exciting that season five has started and we're sharing interviews and still compiling some more for, for later. I get really excited about the ones we've just recorded. And then when I go back to edit the ones that we've already done. I'm like, oh, I forgot that we did this. This is really good. So it's really great. It is. And I'm not surprised that this is a new feeling for you, Michelle, because I don't think we've ever been this organized. I don't want to jinx us or anything, but we're doing pretty well. Yeah, I know. We've definitely been organized. Yeah. A couple of years, but here we are. (laughs) It's very much a learning on the job thing. Uh, But we have like we said last week, we're just trying to change things up just a tad. And so this week we thought instead of, you know, giving recommendations, we thought that we would have like a mini book club for a book that we both read and highly recommend. Yeah. So it technically still is a recommendation, but it just won't be one recommendation from each of us. We'll both be talking about Olive by Emma Gannon. And we do have to say, obviously, that you work for HarperCollins and it is published by HarperCollins, but you were very much looking forward to this book anyway. And I was very much looking forward to it. And I ended up reading it as part of Tandem Collective, doing a read along through HarperCollins. So both of us got copies, but it was on our like most anticipated list anyway. So it was really, really fun to read. Yes, it was. And um another fun thing with this is that I think I messaged you and I was like oh I'm so excited to read this book and I'd gotten a copy through work Mm -hmm. Um, and then you were like hang on did you arrange this and I was like no (laughs) because a copy landed on your doorstep on the same day yeah and then it was uh probably a few hours later that I got the message from Tandem Collective and I'd totally forgotten that I'd put my name forward for a read-along and then it's not guaranteed that you will get it so I was just like oh my god this is so weird and mysterious that this book that I wanted did someone send it to me like what is this it just showed up out of the universe because I want to read it I know it was amazing imagine if that always happened I would literally be inundated with books I know I'm kind of that it doesn't work that way we would have too many (laughs) way too many um anyway let me just give people the rundown if you haven't heard of this Emma Gannon is amazing and this is her first fiction novel so I'll just read out the blurb independent adrift anxious loyal kind knows her own mind 
Olive is many things and it's okay that she's still figuring it all out, navigating her world without a compass, but life comes with expectations. There are choices to be made, boxes to tick, and sometimes stereotypes to fulfill. And when her best friend's lives start to branch away towards marriage and motherhood, leaving the path they've always followed together, Olive starts to question her choices because life, according to Olive, looks a little bit different. So thoughts, what did you enjoy about the book? I think the main thing I really enjoyed about this book is that the friendships felt really real, like like flaws and all. All of these characters, you know, we could sit here and identify perhaps things they did wrong or whatever, but I think that's what makes characters feel really real. And there was four of them, which I feel like is a really fun classic classic thing you know like they could be on sex in the city or something like that like <laughs> a group of four friends so there's obviously olive b isla and cecily and they've been friends since high school or childhood even i think they've definitely been through like the big life changes of yeah. going to university together and moving out together and you know sharing a house and then boyfriends and motherhood and all this sort of yeah. stuff so and definitely like starting their careers and moving up in slightly different ways and doing different things and everything so yeah it was really good and I really also enjoyed the way the book jumped around um in time a little bit to kind of give us some background info like you said from when they were living together at uni or you know first year on the job and the same with her relationship with Jacob as well so the sort of catalyst for things happening in the book is that she breaks up with a long-term boyfriend and I Mm -hmm. I really don't think that's a spoiler but the reason that they break up is because Olive does not think that she is ready or maybe will ever want to have children but he really wants children and my god that scene in the cafe where they finally finally end it and yeah oh my god that scene I remember texting someone and being like because I knew that she'd read it and just saying like that broke me like I was crying reading it because it's so raw and real and the discussions that I had in this book about the decision not to have children are so interesting I think regardless of your position on that and and that's I think the beauty of it this book is billed as the book for you know about a woman who doesn't want to have children but like you said it's so much more than that and the fact that the first thing you thought of was the friendships shows that yeah exactly you know obviously olive trying to figure out what she wants in that area is a large part of the storyline but i think a bigger part of the storyline for me anyway was that how all of our friendships change from time to time and at the point at the main timestamp in this book it's that I can't remember which one one of them one of the friends is quite heavily pregnant and then has a baby and I think it's Cecily yes Cecily and I think Isla is trying to get pregnant so she's trying IVF and she really really wants and so that was a very interesting conversation as well because you have one friend who desperately desperately wants to have children is trying her hardest to have children one pregnant and then one with young children already so 
feels a bit left out being the only one that's not a bit baby mad perhaps but it's just that that is obviously a really big moment for all of them like becoming mothers and things change you know it's kind of different like when there are all of these kind of key moments I think um that are often you know talked about in books and movies and everything and that's why we all know them as these key moments is like when you graduate high school or get your first job and sometimes if you know the timeline feels a little bit different for you it makes that I don't know feel a bit harder sometimes and I think that's mainly what this is about for Olive is that she's like wait I'm not on the same like level as everyone else now and obviously part of that too is because as women we are sort of brought up in this world where it is normal to want to start a family and to want to have children and like is this what I want yeah the the book questions how how we deal with that and the pressure that is put on women to just go along with it and I think that that's really powerful because there's not space for that sort of thing in the media often and when there is and there's discussion of this in the book when characters are shown in movies or tv shows who don't have children they're often shown in quite a stereotypical or like caricature way of like either they're really lonely and they regret it or um you know yeah they're off living this fun life the decision is already made yeah and so this is the decision making process which I think is what's very interesting about it and there's this wonderful wonderful elderly character Olive's neighbor who sort of checks in on her every now and again and she doesn't have children or no she does have a child but he lives far away I think yeah I think um, he lives overseas somewhere if I remember correctly yeah I might not be remembering correctly so any inaccuracies obviously just because it's been a little while but basically Olive asks her something about children are about regret and there's this wonderful line where she says well you know any decision you make is the right decision there is no wrong decision it's it's just your life and whatever decision you make is what you're meant to make and I was like oh. I really liked that too and when she said I think I hope I'm not thinking of something else but I think the quote was like any decision you make is the right decision because it's the one you made at that time yes yeah, I think that's the quote. Yes, yes. So it's, and so true. Yeah. You can't go back and change anything or decide something for yourself in the future. Like you've just got to make the decision in the moment and then that's it. Yeah. And I think in some ways that's how I felt about 2020 as well because at the start of this we were all sort of comparing like what would our life look now? Like we should have been doing this or we should have been doing that. But we're so far into this year now that I think we've all just sort of, no one knows really what their life would have looked like at this point in 2020 because we just can't. So I think letting go of that sort of regret and reflection of what this year should have been has actually been really freeing. And that's obviously somewhat, the process that Olive goes through as well in that she makes the decision and she's like yeah this feels right for me and it doesn't matter what other people think it's what feels right for her and I think that's so powerful to read it really really is because Olive's other friends do have children 
I really did enjoy the moments where, you know, she was being Auntie Olive and supporting her friends through their pregnancies or um, as new mums and at, you know, baby showers. And there were all these like different moments, like where she's like hanging out with her friends' kids. And I really loved that because just because someone chooses not to have children doesn't mean that they hate children. They can still love children and I think even in some of these like little tweets and messages that you're talking about like people were saying I work with children every day I just don't want any of my own or I love my sister's children or my friend's children I just not not for me or whatever (laughs) exactly so what did you think of Olive as a character because she wasn't always likable and sometimes she made decisions that infuriated me How did you feel about her? I feel quite similar. (laughs) Um, There were definitely times where the character of Olive like made a decision to, I can't think of anything specific, but like to not uh, tell her friends something or to not go to that event or to not support them or something in some way. And I, and I was a lot of the time with all of those, I was like, oh, so annoying I was like just tell them but I mean her friends also there were lots of like there were there were just flawed a lot both ways actually yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. because there were other times where I was like feeling palpable rage on her behalf Mm. because someone had said something and I was like oh they just don't get it but I think that's to me always the mark of a very good book that yeah it felt very these characters are full and whole and that means that they've got really big flaws as well very realistic I think with some of those moments so would you recommend this book to other people is it one that you think they'll enjoy absolutely I think a lot of people will enjoy this book I don't like I guess you know it's contemporary fiction more adult than YA obviously it's not YA but (laughs) I mean, we both read a lot of YA and a lot of, I guess, adult fiction. I think anyone who likes contemporary stories would enjoy this, especially if they have any slight interest in, you know, feminism, <laughs> women, and friendships. friendships. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think it's as I said, it's been billed as this novel uh, about a woman who doesn't want a child, but it's much much more than that and it's not the sort of thing that's like well if you're a mum you're not going to get it because there's going to be so much that you relate to if you've had children yeah and I I think it is there is enough yeah and I think another thing that I have seen on social media I think with some people who have read this book and have you know written little reviews and captions about that perhaps they felt they were a little bit too young to really get it or things like that, but I didn't really, you know, I'm 23. I didn't really feel that way, even though I'm not making any decisions about having children anytime soon. Well, it made me have some discussions with Jack about how I felt about having children. And so I think it's just an interesting reflection. And it's, as as Laura Jane Williams was saying in her episode last week, uh, you know, an exercise in empathy to read about why other people choose different things and so I think this is a brilliant example of that 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you're right. I think it's just a good kind of reflection on this modern thing where it's like, hang on, in 2020, are we still honestly expecting that every person just automatically wants to become a parent? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting, interesting read, but it's also quite fun and um, it's sad at times, but it is it is really lovely. I think overall, pretty fun and uplifting contemporary read. So to take things in a completely different direction, yes, we are chatting to a wonderful young adult author and we really enjoyed this chat uh, because, I mean, as we say in the interview, we try not to have favourite guests, but our fellow Queenslanders definitely very, very special to us. So we hope you enjoy this. Yeah. And for the rest of this episode, we're going back to high school. Our guest for this episode is a woman after my own heart, a former journalist and community newspaper editor from Brisbane. She now lives on the Sunshine Coast with her husband and daughter and works as a freelance writer. Her debut young adult novel, Please Don't Hug Me, was inspired by her own autism spectrum diagnosis. And we're really, really excited to welcome to Better Words, Kay Kerr. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to chat to you. I absolutely loved Please Don't Hug Me. It was so, so sweet. I got totally wrapped up in the story. I loved it. I really love hearing from from Queensland readers. I think people that have grown up in Queensland particularly connect to it. So thank you. We don't want to have favourites on the podcast, but if we had to pick people that we like favour just a teeny tiny bit more it's our fellow Queenslanders like we just can't help ourselves we do love you guys (laughs) yeah oh it's so nice because when you go to book events or you see you know book people online and it's so many people in Melbourne and Sydney so when you find another Queenslander it is exciting so yes congratulations on the release of your first novel please don't hug me so for those who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet can you just give us a little blurb a little summary yep I've gotten quite good at this now um so Erin is um, in grade 12 and she's coming up to the last couple of months of high school and she's navigating all of the change that comes with that and change can be really difficult for her because she's autistic. So she, um, at the start of the novel, she loses her part-time job and she has to find another one pretty quickly because she needs to save up enough money to go to schoolies. So um, that's where it starts and the story is told in a series of letters to her brother, Rudy. So just on the letters, obviously this is a really, it's a much loved format by a lot of people, I think. And I'm not even going to attempt to say the correct term for what this type of novel is because I always get it wrong, but this format, what is it that made you want to write in in that way through the letters and to follow in the tradition of, you know, people like Jacqueline Moriarty and stuff who have whole books of letters and stuff like I I love it as a concept. So why did you want to do it? I think people either love it or they really don't love it, I have learned. But for me, it started out actually as diary entries um, because I really felt like in order for Erin to be able to communicate everything that she was going through, a lot of that came with her processing after the events of what, you know, the things that she was going through day to day. So um, I started writing as if she was writing in a diary and then I quickly realized that she was talking to somebody that she knew because I felt like that connection allowed her to be probably a lot more honest than she would have been 
otherwise. So it morphed into Rudy and that sort of storyline came probably in like the second or third draft. Okay, so it wasn't letters to someone else for quite a while. Yeah, I was I was really um, fixed on her voice to start with and her working through these issues. And, yeah, the brother, the sort of storyline that was happening with Rudy was happening off the page, but I realised that, I don't know, something about sibling relationships that I really love. I love exploring the dynamics between siblings, so that's how that came about. I mean, that is another area of young adult where I think there is so much fodder for good novels so having that relationship explored is lovely as well yeah and I just think I really love the idea of um because Rudy's been gone for a year so I really love the idea of when you've got a family unit and you take one of the key players out and how all the other players are left um to deal with that and how they sort of find new ways to interact with each other with that person not being around yes well (laughs) I did think at one point um Many of the things in the novel reminded me of, yeah, living in Queensland and going to school in Queensland. But there was something, like, very early on in the book that I thought, especially because Erin talks about her younger sibling as well, and I was just thinking about how when I moved out for the first time, my parents and siblings were just saying that the house was a lot quieter. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I gave a lot of thought when I moved out. I think I just was so focused on my track. And then, you know, years later talking to my younger brother and I'm talking to my mom about how upset my younger brother was when I moved out and I just was like gone when I turned 18, didn't even think about it. Because <laughs> yeah, you've got so much going on in your life as well that you really, I mean, and let's be honest, when you're that age, we're usually all pretty self-centred. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> And you're like, this is this is my time. This is my year. Like, this is the biggest thing in my life is finishing school. So you really don't care much about what anyone else is going through because you're like the only person who's ever experienced this on the planet and no one else can ever <laughs> understand it. <laughs> and definitely that feeling of like, high school is over and now my real life begins. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I always find it interesting. I I enjoy reading about siblings in books as well because I don't have those relationships as an only child. So I have this like kind of voyeuristic like, oh, what is it like to have a sibling? And I mean, I, I still feel that even so my my partner, Jack, who I talk about on the podcast a bit, We he has two younger sisters and it's so funny when I see them together, I am like, you know, at a family dinner or whatever, I am a bit like, ooh, ooh, this is so interesting, like watching them and they do revert back to their, like he kind of changes a bit and they revert back to their sibling roles of like teasing each other and, you know, like it's just, it's it's really funny to watch these like adults just suddenly change. Yeah, I think I feel a little bit the same about sisters because I grew up with two brothers. So, and all my um, my best friends are like one of you know two really strong, like a strong sisterhood. I found that I'm like attracted to to sisters and just like that relationship because it's so foreign and it just seems amazing. Like it seems like a built in best friend. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it can be <laughs> if you get along. Yeah, Caitlin, <laughs> as someone with a sister, what would you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean. Every sibling relationship, I think, ever, there are times where you don't get along and times where you do. And I think you're pretty lucky if the majority of the time you do get along. <laughs> See, that's the thing I've noticed as as an outsider to coming into a new family with my partner 
is that like they've just sort of accepted me and I'm I feel so every time I'm like thank you guys so much for letting me be part of your family because they have just sort of enveloped me and just made me like his younger sister is like yeah you're my sister too like you and I just that just feels so lovely to me but then there are times as well where they will say something like and I'm like oh my god that's so mean because <laughs> as an only child I'm not used to the teasing or you know all that sort of set in fun stuff but I take it so personally because I'm like oh my goodness <laughs> whereas they're all like oh my god you can tell you did not grow up with siblings <laughs> like just it's fine you'll get over it it's just so strange to me because I've always looked at it probably in looking at it at movies and stuff. Yeah, you you love each other all the time or you hate each other all the time. So the ups and downs are really, they're so unfamiliar to me and I'm fascinated by it. Oh my God, they are interesting relationships. (laughs) I know, I just, I'm fascinated by other people's lives. What can I say? I mean, I actually, interesting unplanned segue. Kay, is that something that you enjoyed about being a journalist as well as getting to like, peek into other people's lives and do it for a for a job yeah absolutely especially at a community news level I feel like you really get uh you know you go into people's houses and you're you're talking about their day-to-day lives or you know the community that they're living in um and the things that are affecting them so I definitely loved that aspect of the job other parts not so much but yeah there's there's ups and downs and Caitlin heard a lot of my ups and downs good days and bad days um, but yeah, there, there are some very odd stories that you do as a small publication or a regional like focus publication, you know, whether that's someone having like the, the, the biggest bull at a bull sale, which is very niche to Rockhampton. Um, or, you know, I did a story once on a kid raising money with an old fashioned lemonade stand. So yeah. <laughs> Kind of do everything. <laughs> yeah, I my first posting was out in regional Queensland, and so um, you know there'd be like you know car accidents or local elections or the show and that kind of thing. But then there'd also be the really obscure things like um, an episode of Australia's Most Deadly Animals came out to film where we were because there was a young boy that had been bitten by a brown snake twice in his life and he was like 12 and he survived both times so they made an episode of a tv show about him we once had a farmer wants a wife contestant that was a I remember doing that story that yeah so okay whereabouts was your first ever journalism job then I was posted about five hours um northwest of Brisbane in a little town called Mundubra at the central and north Bennett times so that's actually the same sort of newspaper family as what I used to work for at the Morning Bulletin in Rockhampton. And obviously since the COVID pandemic, and we we do try not to talk about it too much, but it's hard. You can't not. It's hard in this. But I'd love to know, how do you feel then about the massive changes to the newspaper industry and particularly like the loss of so many community newspapers and APN newspapers like I kept saying to Caitlin that I was just devastated I was devastated as someone who worked in that newsroom even though our paper is still online but so many of my friends lost their jobs but then and I don't know if you feel this too Caitlin just as someone who grew up in the community and like literally had everything from like my baby photo and my first days at school my formal everything was charted in the local paper so how do you feel about 
so many of those publications just vanishing. Yeah, it's so sad. I've been really upset about it. I think people get an idea of, you know, the media and how the media is really awful. Um, But I don't think that really reflects community newspaper sort of journalism because I think that's where so many journalists get their start and it does cover all of the local news that even if there is an online offering, I don't think you get the same um, the same access to people's lives if you're not based in the community and, and putting out a paper every week. And it also just ignores, you know, so many of our elderly community particularly who don't have the capability to access digital editions and, and quite frankly don't want to as well. Yeah, and we would always have elderly residents coming into the office to have a chat about things and that doesn't translate to to logging on and sending an email or anything like that. And I also sort of worry about um, holding, you know, people like councils or, or positions of power to account on the same level because some of those smaller sort of stories might not necessarily be online worthy stories but they're definitely important things to a community so I think it's a massive loss. Yeah totally agree as the uh, the council reporter for three years um, <laughs> went to a council meeting every single week pretty much and reported on everything from old mates new shed application to major community announcements it's um it's certainly not going to make the pages of the courier mail but yeah exactly yeah Yeah. well that was a little detour from (laughs) what we had planned in questions but it's it's fascinating and I mean it's obviously something that's close to both our hearts because I feel like it's it's just really hard to explain to people how much of a family you make within the newspaper industry as well because it's hard for people outside to get what the pressure is like and what the environment is like as well. I don't know. The people that I worked with were the the best people that I've ever worked with. So I feel sad that, you know, lots of them have moved on to other positions and and other people have been made redundant. So it's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Let's like pick the feeling back up and... (laughs) And talk about you and your book again. (laughs) So um, obviously we mentioned that Please Don't Hug Me is an own voices novel. So can you tell us a little bit more about your own autism spectrum diagnosis and how that obviously influenced the book? Yeah, so when I was first writing the book, and it was definitely one of those cases where I just felt like I needed to get the story out of my system and write it down and I'd never show it to anybody, but I just needed to to get that process done. So I think I'd written a first draft or I'd written most of a first draft um, when I got an autism diagnosis. And the character I was writing on the page of Erin, she was really socially anxious and she was awkward and she was dealing with sort of these social and, and sensory challenges, but I didn't have the language or the framework to understand that she was autistic until I got that diagnosis for myself. And I went, oh, that's what she's struggling with. And that's what she's, you know, trying to navigate her way through. So once I had that information, I went back and put in place the the language and the framework. And I guess just a bit more of the self-understanding that it probably took me close to 30 years to get to, to give her that um, as a teenager so that she was able to navigate high school a little better than I think I did. That must have felt like sort of giving a gift to your younger self in a sense to be able to put that language in there. Yeah, it's such a strange thing because I think when I first got my diagnosis, I really mourned 
not having that information about myself and how much easier it would have been if I'd known that. And I still think that to an extent, but I've also spoken to, you know, autistic women that got diagnosed that are around the same age as me and the culture and understanding around autism is changing and evolving. And um, to put a diagnosis in, you know, the 90s when I was in primary school or the early 2000s when I was in high school um, wouldn't necessarily have been the the solve all sort of solution to um, my problems because there's lots of ableism and, and stigma and stereotypes that come along with that. We actually also spoke to um, Anna Watley earlier this year about Peter Lyers reigning normal, um, which is another Owned Voices novel, of course, featuring a neurodiverse character. And actually didn't the book come out on the same day as Please Don't Yeah, we, yeah we've got the same agent. Um, it just yeah, was one of those. book buddies. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's been so lovely to be going through this whole, because it is like launching a book is strange, but launching a book in a pandemic is really strange. Um, yeah. So going through all of this process with somebody that's um, going through the same thing has been amazing. It's been such a gift. And her book's beautiful too. And there, you know, there are themes that are really similar, I think, but they're also really different. Um, and I'm just excited that there's two, you know, own voices, neurodivergent books out there that um, teenagers can access. Yes, so are we. Oh, we absolutely. I'm sure we had a similar conversation with Anna, and I can't remember <laughs> specifics at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's really wonderful to see. Uh, more neurodiverse characters and more diverse characters in general with these sorts of stories and these experiences that so many teens now will have. Yeah, uh, some of the messages that I've been getting on Twitter and Instagram and that kind of thing, it's been pretty wild how close some people's experiences um, have sort of been along the lines of the, the book or, you know, just different elements of the book that have ended up being really, really close to people's lives. It's kind of blown me away. And how do you feel then knowing that maybe you're sort of giving them, I don't want to say some hope, but like maybe some answers or uh, I don't know how to describe it, but they're seeing themselves in your book. How does that feel as an author to know that you're the one who's done that? It's amazing. It's firstly, it's like a sense of community, I think, because when I was diagnosed, I didn't know, well, I've known autistic people, but I didn't have a community an autistic community around me um of people that were going through the same thing so that's been really good but also that idea of being represented or being seen on the page I know the first time I saw an autistic female character on the page I think I just cried my way through the book and it was like a very erotic romance book called The Kiss Quotant so I don't think the author intended people to bawl their eyes out while reading it but um (laughs) Just, yeah, just the, just like the tiniest little details on the page that you relate to that you haven't seen before is incredible. Yeah, you're right. I've read that book and I certainly did not cry. Um. No, <laughs> not a sad book. <laughs> no, it's lovely. I actually really enjoyed that book. So can you tell us a little bit more about your sort of that journey to publication? We know, of course, your lovely agent, Danielle Binks. So how did you get an agent? How did you get a publishing contract? Tell us the story. So once I had my autism diagnosis and my redraft, I've redrafted it probably four or five times where I really kind of scrapped it and started again because I haven't had that creative writing background. So Mm -hmm. I was very much reading widely within AusYA and just trying to see what 
quality of a story ended up on the shelf and just, you know, not being necessarily happy with what was on my page and just starting again and starting again until I got to a point where I felt like it was more of that sort of level of writing. Um, And then I got pregnant. So I thought, oh, pregnancy will be this great sort of timeline, like a really, you know, I'll have nine months to to get this out on pitch to to agents or to publishers and that will be really great. But then I, I had hyperemesis gravidarum, which is where you're like vomiting really badly all day, every day for nine months. So I just didn't look at the book uh, or even think about it. Um, and then I had a new baby, so I didn't think about it for another year, probably after she um, was born. And I think something about her first birthday – and motherhood and how all-encompassing and that sort of takes over your your sense of self um, and reimagines, your, you know, what kind of person you want to be. So the one-year mark, I was like, I have to do something about it. Like if I don't do something about it now, it's going to sit in a file on my computer forever. Um, so I booked a pitch session with Danielle, just um, spur of the moment, at the CYA conference, which is in Brisbane, um, which is a children and young adult writers conference. Um, and so I tied myself up in knots, I think being so nervous about that because I thought that I was going to have to do like an elevator pitch sort of style, but I also sent her, I think the first 10 pages or the first 20 pages and a synopsis and that kind of thing. And I just walked into the meeting and she was like, I need your whole manuscript. Please send it to me before I'd even said anything. (laughs) And is this the same, that's the same conference that Anna pitched at to Danielle as well. Is that right? Yeah, she pitched the following year, and she emailed me, and like because we were kind of like there are none, none, not none of these stories, but not many of these stories. You know, is too not is it going to be too much? But you know, is there space for both of these stories? And I just think we had this amazing conversation, Anna and I, right at the start about how you know more stories makes room for more stories as opposed to taking away space. Um, for other writers so and Danielle was obviously super keen to have more stories so I think my process once um, I'd signed with Danielle it was quick and I signed um, with text pretty quickly but there was a longer sort of period between signing and publication um, which gave me lots of time to overthink and imagine that they were changing my mind about my book and they didn't want it anymore. And But really just because they're a small publisher, it, it was just big gaps in between every time we would work on it because my editor was working on, you know, 10 books at a time. So yeah, And it must be weird coming from a newspaper background as well where everything moves so damn quickly and it's literally like, okay, we're going to do this at 10 a.m. and, you know, by 5 p.m. it's going to the printer. It must have been so odd then to go to publishing, which already moves at a glacial pace. Um, so then to work with a smaller publisher where resources are limited, I can imagine yeah. you just would have been tearing your hair out. I was completely neurotic about it. And in, like in hindsight, obviously that was just my own stuff. And I'm hoping, you know, fingers crossed, I won't bring that same level of neuroses into my second book because <laughs> I'll understand the process a little bit more. Um, yeah. And that was the thing, like when my editor sent me notes to work on, she'd be like, you know, get this back to me in four weeks or six weeks and I'd have it back to her in like two weeks just because I work quickly and that's kind of my process. I'd rather it be like, you know, if you are in on a newspaper and you're making changes, you're kind of bouncing it back and forward and getting it off your plate and it's done. Whereas if you have too long to, to look at it, you're overworking it in a way. And I think um, as well, when you go into it as a debut author, everyone kind of 
prepares you for the editing process and says, you know, if they say anything and you get upset, don't worry, it's for the, you know, the betterment of the book. But I think having a journalist background, you kind of, you're really used to your words being ripped to shreds sometimes. <laughs> Not that they were ripped to shreds, but you're really used to the process of working with somebody else to make the end product better. I think probably publishing a book, they're probably a bit more gentle with you oh, than... Very nice. <laughs> Journalists are just like, no, this is crap. Cut it out. <laughs> yeah, I know no, they're super nice. And um, the other thing about if you match up with an editor that is the right fit, that they will see things in in the work that you might not even necessarily see yourself, um, and it makes it yeah. way better than if you'd just been left to your own devices. Was there something um, specific about the public, the whole publishing process that really surprised you? Um, I think. Everybody in the writing or the Love Oswaye community is so embracing of other authors straight away. There's no, you know, not that our books are competition, but there's there's just no none of the sense of people feeling like their book and your book are up against each other. It's just all support and that's been a lovely surprise. I don't know why I expected it to be any different, but, yeah, just, just how quickly everybody embraces you especially because I'm not an overly social or outgoing person so you feel like you've kind of landed in a ready-made community and it's pretty cool. It does sort of feel like it's Love Oz YA as a group against the rest of the world as opposed (laughs) to individual books against each other like if you maybe look at the American publishing market it you it does seem to be quite competitive and obviously vastly different from Australia whereas Love Oz YA is like this group where everyone seems to support each other's books because ultimately, as you said before, more stories makes room for more stories. So having more Australian authors can only be a good thing. And it's kind of like, I guess, because it is a small industry as well, you can't really, like people who weren't very nice people, I don't know that they would necessarily last in that community or they would necessarily be uplifted in the same way because everybody's has their little moment when their book is launched and and when people get behind it and then other books are launched and and the quality of stories in love Oswe I feel like is just so incredible it's yeah. absolutely top notch isn't it <laughs> amazing we love all <laughs> so obviously we mentioned before very Queensland novel and we both went to high school in Queensland oh my god Reading Please Don't Hug Me, I had so many flashbacks to my own formal lining up outside our school hall to take the QCS test, talking about schoolies constantly. I was, I don't think I've ever read a novel, even set in Queensland, that I really felt like it was so accurate with some of those things for how you experience them. It's so intense, the last three months of high school. That's why I just felt like it was such a um, fruitful time period to look at because you you know and the thing with QCS was the book was meant to be originally to come out in 2019 which was the last year of QCS so when it got pushed back to 2020 we had a discussion around um, whether or not we would write that out of the book but I really wanted it to play in there because I felt like it was a real snapshot of a time and a place and um, such a Queensland thing isn't it (laughs) it makes it that much more Queensland (laughs) I think if I tried to write it into 2020 there's no way I could have predicted what's happening in 2020 so I'm glad that I left it in 2019 as well yeah yeah I just it, it is it is funny and it sort of makes it even more 
like, yes, it ages it to a specific place, but I also think that's fine because it's sort of like a little memorial to the bloody QCS test that we all had to take. <laughs> the absurdity of the like lining up with your plastic sleeve full of your equipment and you know the having the right pencil and all of those things that were so drilled into you as being so important and you look back and in alphabetical order yeah I took a PCS test in 2013 and I could tell you who was before me and who was after me yeah yeah And I think ours, we did the second day of QCS and it was our formal that night or it was our formal the next day. Like it was really, yeah, like just bang, bang, bang. And then, you know, exams, graduation, schoolies, it's just such a full on time. How did it feel sort of going back to high school and writing those experiences? Um, At the time, it was a really emotionally draining process because I feel like I was digging up all of the you know, embarrassment and shame and trauma and like awful things to try and mine the emotions out of those things. So the things that happened to Erin in the book aren't the same things that happened to me in high school, but I was trying to access, you know, those feelings. So I definitely was listening to music that I listened to in high school and like looking at old photos and trying to um, to access authentic sort of feelings about those times. So definitely really, really draining at the time. But um, after the process was done and, and through the editing, it it was really cathartic because it was like a letting go of all of the negative feelings about that time and realizing that um, being undiagnosed autistic, I did the best I could. And um, I had so much more empathy for Erin on the page than I did for myself. Um, so that was kind of eye-opening in a way that that allowed me to be, yeah, more forgiving of my teen self. Yeah, it sounds like a really... Um cathartic process overall writing the book (laughs) Um, and obviously you know even just the title um, please don't hug me very appropriate for current times so I mean you mentioned it just a little bit earlier that obviously it's been a bit strange releasing a book now but can you tell us a little bit about that what what that process has been like and how you felt actually seeing the book go out into the world in a way that was not what you would imagined. Yeah, so there are probably two ways that I can look at it depending on how I'm feeling on the day. Um, In one sense, I think it was really sad and disappointing because I was going to have, you know, my friends and family come to a in-person event and I was going to be doing Sydney Writers Festival and I was going to be doing a Melbourne launch and that kind of thing. So not having that sort of marker of time and that sort of celebration of all the work and all the people that worked on the book as well because it's not obviously just me um but on the flip side of that I think um which is something Erin does in the book as well like I can find myself in situations where I don't realize how overwhelming or hard it will be for me until I'm in it and then I'm kind of like oh man like why did I sign up for this so being able to do digital events definitely has been less taxing on my energy because I'm able to do you know a podcast or a zoom event and then turn off the computer and go inside and lie in a dark room or something like that it's not all of the the social output and the travel that comes with um yeah face-to-face events so I think it's been a nice sort of way to ease into doing book promotion and I hope that you know second time around I get to do actual in-person events but we'll see um about that yeah and everybody's been so supportive especially of people that are um, debuting and launching in this time so I feel really lucky in that way 
Yeah. That is a really interesting way to look at it. It's almost like your practice run, like your first first trial. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess the thing with YA or, you know, with books in general is that even though they're launched on a certain date, that they don't have an expiry date. So, you know, you can you can do events or you can be talking to people about your book, you know, six months, 12 months down the track. So hopefully that's the case. I'm glad we asked you that because I did want to, I was wondering because there wasn't time for, you know, the publication date of your book to move. I think a lot of other authors this year who, whose books were moved to later in the year or who, you know, if they were already scheduled for later this year, kind of had a bit more time to prepare for that change. Yeah, I, I think I think the Australian like like indie bookshops and that they did a really fast pivot to to online, which has been really impressive to see. And also, you know, accessibility is the other thing that comes up because if I want to go to book launches in Brisbane now, it's like a three hour round trip for me to go. Let alone the energy and the output and finding making sure that I have somebody to look after my kid and like all of those steps that barriers for me um to go to events and now all of a sudden I'm able to go to book launches like two or three times a week if I want to all around Australia so it's been really cool um to finish up we'd like to ask you a little bit about your next novel so you just announced it on Instagram recently and we're already so excited um so it's called Social Cue and you've described it as a dreamy own voices autistic YA romance so can you tell us anything else I was lucky enough to do a Varuna residency at the beginning of March. It was right before sort of COVID hit and um, very strange. Yeah, very strange. But I think knowing that that a potential lockdown was coming really kind of spurred me to write lots and lots of words on that week away. Um, But also I think I started writing it before I went away through the bushfires and, and through the start of sort of COVID and I really was leaning on escapism sort of stories like those comfort reads those romances and and tv shows and movies as well so I wanted to um produce something along those lines as a bit of a a tribute to all the stories that I love so much and also just to put an autistic girl at the center of a a teen romance because I thought that would be um lots of fun um so she uh, Zoe, who is the main character in Social Cue, is in her first months of university. So I wanted – it's a similar sort of time. It's kind of like the flip side of yes. – we, we always talk about how much we love that time as a place to explore in YA or like older YA. Yeah, and it's very much – I guess it's a kind of grey area as to whether it's, you know, still YA, but it's more based on the themes like, you know, some – stories about 18 year olds are going to be for adults but this is very much a YA in the in the themes of um yeah looking back on her high school experience and um not feeling like she had the romantic experience um and then all of a sudden she's 18 and she's on the dating apps and she's feeling very much um, out of her depth so um a lot of my early journalism experience went into it because she's doing a cadetship or an internship um like an online publication and she's writing about her experiences with dating and um, she's writing about how she hasn't had that experience and how um, nobody's ever had a crush on her and she feels like she's missed out on this sort of pivotal teen experience and then she finds out that these people from her past 
did have crushes on her, um, she dismissed the cues or missed the sort of signs that they had feelings. So she goes back and has um, interactions with all these people from her past to, to see if she can find somebody to connect with. Okay, I need this book right now except I need you I need you to change it to the character being like 23 or something because that's how old I was when I finally got some dating experience I had like okay like everyone this is very embarrassing for me but I was 21 when I had my first kiss so like I definitely feel like I was just such a loser I just feel like High school is so, like, the experiences are so vast in how they vary and you get this idea in your head of everybody being ahead of you in, like, a million different ways, um, whether it's their job or whether it's their relationship or whether it's, you know, they've travelled and you haven't travelled or whatever it is. So that's definitely a big theme that I wanted to to touch on because I do feel like, yeah, the first sort of months out of high school when you're supposed to be living your, your real life and your best life, it can be, yeah. Bit scary. I'm already in love with this book and this character, and I just want to read it immediately. It sounds incredible. I had so <laughs> much fun writing it, and I think in all of the ways that Please Don't Hug Me was really hard, you know, like dredging through the really hard stuff. This was just like pure joy of like imagining beautiful sort of meet cutes and and moments and you know things that you when you meet somebody that you like for the first time or trying to figure out if somebody likes you the same way that you like them, all of that was just so much fun to write. Oh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. Like no pressure. Yeah. Oh my God. I cannot wait. I thought it would be like a 2022, 23, just because of the state of everything. But um, texts have sort of earmarked it for the second half of next year. So I'm really excited. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us, Kay. We've absolutely loved chatting to you about Please Don't Hug Me and all of your writing process and Queensland and everything. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been so lovely. It is an absolute delight. And you know what? Hopefully we'll be able to celebrate with you in the future sometime in person where there will be no hugs, but we will celebrate Lots of cake. with some donuts. <laughs> Lots of cake and donuts. Yeah, thank you so much. Where can people find you online? Oh, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram if you search Kaker. Um, more Instagram than Twitter, but definitely on both. Doom scrolling sometimes, but yeah. And posting really, really, really pretty photos with your book announcements so everyone can go and enjoy those <laughs> lovely floaty dress photos. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.